I invite you, come with me back to 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. First Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, our Father, grant to us by your spirit that this, your word, be of great effect in our lives. Fulfill your promise. This, your inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word, may it be food for our very souls today, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You ever been misunderstood? Someone's taken offense at something you've done or not done or said or haven't said. You find out someone's hurt or angry with you and you're puzzled because wasn't your intention to offend or hurt them. Misunderstanding why someone does something isn't necessarily unusual. An invitation declined, a failure to acknowledge someone when you see them in public, a wave not returned when driving by. Sometimes misunderstandings or a lack of clarity can lead to funny and advantageous outcomes. Steve Winger from Lubbock, Texas, wrote about his last college exam, a final in a logic class known for its difficulty. To help us on the test, the professor told us we could bring as much information to the exam as we could fit on a, a single piece of notebook paper. Most students crammed as many facts as possible on their 8.5 by 11-inch sheet of paper. But one student walked into class, put a piece of notebook paper on the floor, and had an advanced logic student stand on the paper. I know, it takes a moment. The advanced logic student told him everything he needed to know. He was the only student to receive an A. The professor altered the wording of his policy after that.
misunderstanding. How do we face suffering? Because suffering oftentimes grows out of misunderstanding. Peter's telling the early church and telling us at the same time about faithful living in fearful times, the theme of this series in 1 Peter. We must must not underestimate the fearfulness of the times. If we do, we're going to mistake what faithfulness actually looks like. Our struggle, friends, is we'd prefer a compromised Christianity that preserves our comfortable lives. Because we really don't like being uncomfortable. It's annoying. It's tiresome. And what Peter is telling us here is that Christian conversion confuses the world. Christians are a puzzle to non-Christians. Oh, they may think they understand, and some of them proffer psychological analysis about a weakness of character or a weakness of mind or some other hole in the believer's life that makes them a believer, and if they were just healthier mentally or emotionally, they'd abandon all of this Christianity. And of course, I chuckle because the people who make those kinds of assessments usually have lives that are absolute train wrecks themselves. Peter is talking to the church about the suffering that is real and certain, why it happens, and how to be prepared for it. Look at this other facet. Never forget, Christian, you're a puzzle to non-Christians. They really don't understand. So Peter first tells us that we should be armed with the attitude of Christ. Now, if you're wondering where I got that, you didn't pay attention to the first verse, because there he says, since Christ therefore suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. My, that sounds an awful lot like Paul in Philippians, the second chapter, have the same mind in you as Christ had. Peter uses similar language. He is unrelenting in his continuing connection of the Christian's life to the suffering of Christ. Suffering not as martyr, but suffering that is redemptive. Suffering that actually has glorious purpose in it. Not as some view Jesus, the way that Schweitzer viewed him. Misguided visionary. Listen to Schweitzer here for a moment. There's silence all around. He's describing the culture, first century. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which brings all ordinary history to a close. Now, this all sounds very majestic at this point, right? Vivid imagery takes hold of the wheel of the world. It's going to change the direction. 
it refuses to turn. He throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward in the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign. God have mercy. If that is his victory and his reign, there is no victory. There is no reign. This is not Peter's view of the cross nor of Christ's work. He tells us in these, this first verse that Christ suffered to destroy sin. This looks back to chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The appeal to believers to live for Christ is based in the death of Christ. It is not an appeal merely for sympathy. Christ suffered. Now, you should feel so bad about that that if you sin, you've really messed up. That is not the main idea. The whole purpose of Christ's dying was to free us from sin's dominion both in terms of guilt first, that we are justified, but also in terms of actual living. Christ died to set you free from sin. Now see, that, for some, that doesn't seem like all that good news. We love the idea of being freed from the guilt. I don't want to get in trouble. But now, Lord... You know, some of these sins are kind of dear to me. And they're really just little things. His one act of suffering, he deals with sin once. Paul's emphasis in Romans 6 is that in his dying, he one time does all that has to be done for sin to be eliminated. He ceases from sin himself, not that he sinned. Rather, he is done with sin through his sacrifice and granting us freedom. His one act of suffering was to bring an end of sin's dominion in your life. It is not only then that Christ suffered to destroy sin. Christians then identify with Christ and we are to be done with sin. I mentioned Romans 6 earlier, but listen to what Paul says. Romans 6, beginning at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer, now hear these words, no longer be enslaved to sin. Peter's variation on the theme is still very much connected 
and he talks about it in terms of suffering. Now, Christian, understand this. You live in a world that doesn't really see sin. Oh, there are things that people find immoral, unethical, problematic, difficult. But there is not, other than the Christian understanding, a real honest appraisal and view of sin. And my friend, the church is tempted, I think, in our era, as much as any other era, to redefine sin. To change what is clearly revealed by God. You see, my friend, if you're willing to suffer for righteousness, then you have actually made a break with sin. That's what Peter means when he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus doesn't die only to free you from guilt. He dies to free you from sinning. Now you say, well, I'm not good at that. This is news. Regardless of your assessment of how successful you are, that is divine purpose. You and I, united with Christ in his dying, united with him in his resurrection, Christ has suffered to put away sin, to put away its guilt. That's first. If you don't resolve the guilt problem, you never resolve the dominion problem. In other words, if you don't know that God has declared you not guilty, you will never battle sin the right way. All you'll ever do is be miserable. Sin is what creates the suffering. We must never make peace with sin. So beginning here, my friend, our conversion confuses the world and the only hope for that and help for that is to be armed with the attitude of Christ. But while armed with the attitude of Christ, we're also to understand we're going to be abused because of the attitudes of the world. Verses 2 to 4. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is, excuse me, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. And then he goes through the list. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Christian, Peter is making this abundantly clear. There's only two ways to live. You either live for human passions or you live under the will of God. There's nowhere in between those two worlds. Live the life that has been granted you under the will of God. Live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Now, let me, there's always the need to give the caveat. There are times we give the impression of the old, horrid, and inaccurate definition of a Puritan, which was living with the sneaking suspicion that somewhere, somebody might in some way be having a good time. Now, first of all, that is a slam on the Puritans that they did not deserve. They understood life far better than we do. If you doubt that, you ought to look at the peculiar case of a woman who took her husband before the elders of the church 
for discipline because he was denying her her marital privileges in the bedroom. The Puritans were not fools. They knew how to live in this world. Never forget the book of Ecclesiastes makes a very clear statement and case for the fact that pleasure is pleasurable. That's profound, right? And there's nothing particularly wrong with pleasure. Whatever that is, God gave us appetites. What Peter is addressing here is not the right use of the good gifts of God, but the abuse, the wrong use of the gifts of God, where the gift becomes more important than the giver, where there's an idolatry that sets in, and this is how the world lives. You and I are not to live like that anymore. We have made a definitive break with that former life. And then he talks about the life you left. I love the way he puts it there in, in uh, verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles have done. In other words, y'all sinned enough. Back then, that was enough. If you sinned a little before you were converted, it's enough. If you sinned a lot before you were converted, it's enough. Stop it. And then the list includes six different things, and it's all imageries of out-of-control debaucheries, a life of no restraint, passions, immorality, drunkenness is clear, orgies clear, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. In essence, that's the summary, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But now here's the life you are to live and the one that's misunderstood. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, your new life confuses your old companions. Your new life convicts the world. Your new life is an abrasive to people's conscience. This is not new. The Roman historian Tacitus, who was no fan of Nero, in writing an assessment of Nero, talking about after the fire that it was believed Nero had actually set, the fire that destroyed a huge portion of the city of Rome, listen to these words, to put an end therefore to this rumor, he shifted the charge onto others and inflicted the most cruel tortures upon a body of men detested for their abominations and popularly known by the name of Christians. The name came from one Christus, who was put to death in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. But though checked for a time, the detestable superstition broke out again. Not in Judea only, but where the mischief began, but even in Rome, where every horrible and shameful iniquity from every quarter of the world pours in and finds a welcome. First, those who acknowledged themselves of this persuasion, that is, that they were Christians, were arrested. And upon their testimony, a vast number were condemned, not so much on the charge 
of, he uses incendiarism. In other words, setting fires. As for, now listen to this, quote, their hatred of the human race. That is how Christians were viewed in the first century. May I humbly submit to you that American culture is deciding, and many have decided, that we hate people. So we're past the time where you can say, I don't agree with you, but go live your life. It's not my business. Oh, no, 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 no. In the new era of the sovereignty of the self, if you don't give full-throated, loud approval, you are a hater. Don't be surprised by that, Christian. Peter already warned you. When you don't go along with it anymore, you're the problem. Calvin put it this way, it's not light temptation or a light problem trial when those among whom we live charge us that our life is out of conformity with that of mankind in general. So they accuse the children of God as though they're trying to engineer a split in the world. Drawing the line, says Edmund Clowney, will Drawing the line in a new life will antagonize former friends. They'll find our new behavior bizarre, even threatening. He goes on to talk about Charles Colson, who gained notoriety in the Watergate scandal as the close associate of President Richard Nixon. Colson was known as the hatchet man. He was the one who got rid of problem people. When he was converted in the midst of the Watergate proceedings, the press greeted his born-again witness with the hoots of derision. Cartoonists had a field day picturing a cover-up by this instant saint. When the passing years, however, went by, Colson's genuineness in caring for prisoners made its mark. The cynical laughter died down, and Colson's conversion began to command respect, but they still did not actually understand it. Christian, hear it this way. Godliness is not optional. But if you expect the world to approve of your godliness, you're living foolishly. The world will not approve. It cannot. I want to say to some of my brethren, who, the guys who are always trying to be cool ministers, the cool preacher, you know. I, I, I gave up on cool a long time ago. I never quite met the mark, you know. And here's the reality. You can't be cool enough for folks without dangerous compromise. It's an absolute disaster waiting to happen. You and I are not to be surprised that we are going to be abused for our attitudes. And young people, I say this to you clearly. 
you're going to find this hostility probably even more readily than some of us who are older because you're going to be around more people who are going to find you just weird. And not even a little bit weird, really, really strange. And brother, we can do all sorts. And I'm, please understand, I, there may be answers in homeschooling and private education. There may be all sorts of things you can do. But my friends, if we don't arm our children internally, it doesn't matter how much external we do. You understand that? I, I, have, I have watched my life as people worked on the externals and never built the internals. And when the externals were gone, since the internal was never dealt with, the internal just went the direction of the world because that's where the heart was. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just saying, along with all you do to try to help your children live in this world, never lose sight that if they don't come to know Jesus, there's not enough internal character to do this thing. And wouldn't it be sad, even if they were able to externally conform to a version of godliness, if they never believe it inwardly, they're still just as doomed. So make Christianity admirable, not merely in terms of behave. I know my kids said, you always said behave. I did, and I meant it. But the heart the mind all right so we've considered this matter of christian conversion confusing the world we have to be armed with the attitude of christ we've got to be prepared because of the abuse from the attitudes of this world but finally let me give you this assurance we are assured by the accurate judgment of god verses five and six but they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. <laughs> I love that. Paul, Paul wants you to be reminded of something. Peter, excuse me. I know where I am. Peter wants you to be mindful of something. Nero may be on the throne of Rome. The Lord is on the throne forever. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The certain judgment of non-Christians. God will judge those who abuse you. Your sense of justice will be served, but let God do the serving. The Lord is the one to whom they must answer. The people of this world may haul Christians before judges demand they give an account of themselves. Christians must be ready in every situation to give a reason for their hope. But their precursors are themselves accountable to Christ, the, the Lord, the persecutors, excuse me. The thought of that contrast and the Lord's vindicating judgment leads Peter to say this. These persecutors who are taking you to judgment will one day answer to God. The comfort of the judgment for Christians. Now think about this. He, Peter's writing to believers who have seen loved ones be arrested. They've died. And Peter saw this, right? Peter was there when James was arrested and Herod lopped off his head. And then he arrested Peter for it, right? The Lord delivers Peter, but he'd lived through the persecution under Saul, 
who eventually is converted? What about our friends, our family members who all believe this gospel, who died possibly through persecution? Were they foolish? No, no, no. The gospel was preached even to those who were dead. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel wasn't preached to them in vain. They answer to the Lord, and the Lord loves them and takes them unto himself. One brother put it this way, the gospel was not preached to your dead Christian friends in vain. The reason the gospel is preached to those who have died is so that even though it looks like they've been judged like everyone else, they haven't. They're alive in the Spirit. They are with the Lord, and the sufferings they experienced are not worthy to be compared with the glory that has already been revealed to them. And I think about Stephen dying under a hail of stones. People angry, raging, literally grinding their teeth. Behold, I see heaven opened. <laughs> and the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And <laughs> ever ponder the way Luke taught? What a horrible, violent way to die. They're throwing stones. And Luke says, and with that he lay down and fell asleep. Did that ever strike you? <laughs> Sorry, strike. <laughs> Sometimes I stumble into things. This horrid, violent death. He laid down. Went to sleep. How can we do this? Will we find it was worth the misunderstanding, this change in lifestyle, the suffering that went along with it? And the resounding answer from Peter is yes. Now sometimes the Lord will use that for good in the lives of persecutors. Not always, but sometimes. I just read yesterday the story of this Iranian girl, Fatima who had lived in Iran all her life. Her earliest memories were of being sexually assaulted by members of her own family. At age 11, now think about this, at age 11, she is sold into marriage to a young drug addict who abused her and divorced her when she was 17. She returned home and was there assaulted again. Fleeing her home, she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ on the streets and believed. In time, she married a Christian man, and together they began to receive training in evangelism and church planting. It wasn't long before Fatima Believed she was being called to take what it must have felt to her like an enormous step, an enormous risk. She resolved to go back home to her abusers 
and a witness for Christ to her family. When she and her husband when she and her husband did, her entire family repented and came to faith in Christ. So the first church that Fatima and her husband planted was in her own formerly abusive childhood home. What's striking about the story, so remarkable to us, is it's not particularly remarkable for the Iranian context. You may know the Iranian church is widely regarded as the fastest growing in the world. Second fastest is Afghanistan. Largely because of new converts in Iran witnessing to their Afghan neighbors because their languages are so close. In 1979, there were just 500 persecuted and suffering Christians in Iran. Today, the precise number is unknown, but the Iranian church easily numbers in the hundreds of thousands. And if you were to ask, how is it the church has grown, you'd probably not do any better than to look at Fatima's story and the stories of countless others like her. That's how the church has grown. Bold, godly, humble, courageous, suffering servants of Christ. My friend, that is exactly what Simon Peter is calling us to do. Faithful living in fearful misunderstood armed with the attitude of Christ abused because of the attitudes of those around us who do not understand but assured by this final accurate judgment the Lord the Lord is the final judge and our lives are in his hand let's pray Father, we, we admit we're not looking forward to greater suffering. It's not something that we go hunting for. But Lord, at the same time, our prayer is that you make us prepared for that. That be, we be ready, we be willing to be misunderstood, to be maligned, to be thought of as haters of humanity, when at heart and truth we actually have great love for them. We would say, as Paul did, when asked by Agrippa, would you so quickly make me a Christian? Are you trying to convert me? That he said, I wish that all here were exactly like me except for my chains. Father, may we pray for the liberation of those in bondage to sin. May we pray for the saving even of those who would hate and persecute us. And may we entrust our lives into your faithful hands, for it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand now and sing this hymn in response.
let's uh, sing this song of response. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. bless you. We welcome you to come back to our quarterly members meeting tonight at six. Matt, would you come lead us in benediction? That we are called to suffer is, as Christians is uh, without doubt, and no one could attest that better than the Apostle Paul, who uh, when he was in prison uh, penned this prayer for spiritual strength of the Ephesian church. Would you pray with me? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory,